The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, he was born Tomas Strausler in what was then Czechoslovakia in 1937. From these humble and unlikely beginnings, he became one of the masters of the English language, writing with a wit and panache and deep philosophical inquiry that made his plays staples of the 20th and 21st century repertoires. And although plays like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, Arcadia, The Invention of Love, and The Coast of Utopia made his name as a playwright, his work as a screenwriter, both credited and un- have added brilliance to some of our most enduring films. Empire of the Sun, Brazil, The Russia House, and Shakespeare in Love all benefited from that Stoppardian touch. Just what is that touch? What does he explore? What does he do best? And what is it like to admire him throughout his career, mostly but not exclusively from afar? We'll talk with our guest, producer and playwright Scott Carter, about his admiration for Tom Stoppard today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad you're here. I'm doing great. Just great. I know. I know that's not what you expect from me, and believe me, I'm not wearing rose-colored glasses. I'm not blind to the pains of the world. But a couple of episodes ago, I was a little down, and I got a lot of emails from people, and I wanted to let you all know I am fine. Doing great. Thank you for your kindness. I do appreciate it. Speaking of a couple of episodes ago, that was the Roger Ebert episode, and I shared a personal story, and the feedback was incredibly warm, more kindness from the History of Literature podcast. I, ah, oh, you guys, I do believe that we have a very powerful audience. I think it's all the literature you guys are reading. It's given you bountiful empathy. Your empathy skills are expanded. You're the best people in the world. Good for you. Let's conquer the world with love and decency. Speaking of which, there's not... Really a more decent person than Scott Carter, or if there is, I haven't met him or her. Scott's been here before, of course, most recently to talk about Dylan Thomas. And he said, hey, how about Tom Stoppard? Would you like to talk about him sometime? Yes, please. He's a fascinating figure, Mr. Stoppard. Sir Stoppard, maybe I should say. I have to look up his titles because I don't know all of the abbreviations behind his name. O.M., Order of Merit, I know that. C.B.E. is something British Empire. I thought it was crown of, I was guessing, certificate. No, commander. Should have known that. B, I guess I could have guessed that one. B-E is British Empire, obviously. F-R-S-L. That one stumped me. And on F-B-A. On H-O-N-F-B-A. No clue. 
So I checked them out. OM, Order of Merit, CBE, yes, Commander of the British Empire, which is below Knight slash Dame, if you're tracking. FRSL, as it turns out, is Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, probably one I should have known. It includes about 600 luminaries, including Michael Frayn and Stephen Fry and Esther Freud. That's just one little snippet of the Fs. Monica Ali is in there, Timothy Garnash, Martin Amos, so many people. Salman Rushdie. Is this, is this a club to rival the Literature Supporters Club? The British equivalent, I guess. Maybe not quite as secretive and exclusive, but... That's a Mike thing. A snob to his core. Okay, moving on. Oh, one more title for Sir Tom. Fellow of the British Academy. Another academic honor. What's interesting, of course, I'm not that interested in looking this up for most people, but for Tom Stoppard, it's interesting because he is intensely British in a sense. That's how he comes to us. In a sense. One hand, he's... Very British. On the other hand, he's on the outside. He's the expert in Shakespeare, in English gardens, in Lord Byron. There are all kinds of very English traditions that we can associate him with. And of course, the English language itself. He's a dazzling practitioner of a cerebral, heady style. Very facile with language. And yet he was not born to a family of English novelists and poets and Oxford dons and all of that. He was born in a Moravian city known for manufacturing shoes. And his father was, in fact, a doctor who worked at a shoe factory. It just occurred to me that we have two episodes this week back-to-back on Czech-born writers. Karl Chopik's father was a doctor at a factory also. A textile factory. Ah, some unplanned synergy there on the History of Literature podcast. The main differences between Stoppard and Chopik, of course, is that Chopik stayed in Prague until he died shortly before World War II, and Stoppard, who was born much later than Chopik, he was born in 1937, which was just a year before Chopik died. And when he was young and World War II was encroaching, he, Stoppard, fled with his family. They left what was then Czechoslovakia. The Strausslers were non-observant Jews, and they fled to Singapore on the same day that the Nazis invaded Czechoslovakia. Several Jewish employees of the Bata factory, that's the shoe factory, several Jewish employees of the Bata factories did this, many of them physicians. Singapore was itself, though, about to be occupied, which led to a dramatic and tragic event in Stoppard's life, while Tom and his mother and his brother fled Singapore for India his father volunteered for the British Army, hoping that would give them some protection and knowing that his status as a doctor would make him needed and welcomed. And unfortunately, he died when Stoppard was just four years old in circumstances that are not quite clear, at least to me. At first, Tom seems to have believed that his father was a POW who died in captivity, but later he seems to have learned that his father was drowned when a ship that he boarded and was trying to leave Singapore was bombed by Japanese forces. In 1941, Tomas became Tom. He and his brother Peter started to attend an American school in Darjeeling, India. Four years later, his mother married a British Army major named Kenneth Stoppard, who gave the boys his name and who relocated the family to England when Stoppard was 10. Tom Stoppard spent the next seven years 
torn between two worlds. On the one hand, his father believed and instilled in him the idea that being British was the greatest status or identity one could possibly ever have. You're British. Don't you understand? I gave you that, he would say. On the other hand, while attending British schools, Tom felt like a constant outsider. Every so often, a mispronounced word or a misunderstood tradition, a reference that went over his head, something would expose him as a foreign interloper. And so he would suffer through a kind of identity crisis when he was in his teens. He didn't fit. Suddenly, I'm there naked, he described it, as someone with a pass, a press ticket. His plays have characters like this, often constantly addressed by the wrong name, which is a source of comedy, but also pain and confusion. People have two names. People have multiple identities. At the same time, I think we need to recognize that his background helped him become the writer that he is. No one sees a world quite as clearly as an outsider who's given access to the inside. No one is better suited to observe, comment upon, or analyze a society like someone who is part in and part out. And in Stoppard's case, with his deep intelligence and natural facility with words and word play, this superpower of observations extended to a facility with language and ideas as well as culture, or what we might even call civilization. His greatness as a playwright has been his ability to package all of this insight and turn it into glintingly sharp dialogue and characterization. But first, he turned to journalism. He never went to college. He started as a journalist at 17 and didn't look back. His work writing theater criticism started him down the path of writing plays himself in the style of Robert Bolt and Arthur Miller. His very first play was staged and then bought for television, and he was on his way, writing plays, adapting plays, also writing for radio and television. And then the big breakthrough, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is a lot like Beckett's Waiting for Godot with the characters from Hamlet, whose main action in that play takes place off stage. of course. It's a play for lovers of plays, just as Stoppard is a writer's writer, or a writer's writer's writer. We can probably put him in that category. And so we are lucky to have a writer here to tell us about Stoppard's career as seen from a fellow writer's perspective. When it began, what he most appreciated, how Stoppard has changed over time. I'll tell you one thing. The knock on Stoppard early on was that his plays were dazzling but sterile. There was something detached about them. The balance between head and heart was tilted too far in the direction of the head. Brainy but clinical. It's a criticism that Stoppard took seriously, and his development, he's now 85, with dozens of works under his belt, and a lot of his own biography having been unearthed and examined by him as he's gone through marriages and delved into his past and tried to find that little boy and those parents and his stepfather and how it all turned Tomas Strausler into Tom Stoppard and what it has been like to live his life from an emotional perspective as well as an intellectual one. The development is probably one that critics are still catching up with. Maybe not hardcore fans of theater, but the general reading and theater-going theater public. Or maybe I'm just talking about myself. 
I have a lot of stoppered digging to do. I've seen about five or six of his plays over the years, and I read Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in college, and of course I've seen Shakespeare in Love and Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, the one with Sean Connery, at least half a dozen times. But I've got more stoppered to experience if I'm going to get the full Stoppardian experience, which seems like it's worth doing. So let's bring out our guide to get us started here. Scott Carter, who's done much more of a deep dive already, so he can make the case for Tom Stoppard and tell us where to begin. Scott Carter, after this. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is friend of the show, Scott Carter, who has been here previously to discuss Oscar Wilde, Dylan Thomas, and a trio of famous individuals, Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Count Leo Tolstoy, who all wrote their own variation on the Gospels. Scott is also an expert in entertainment. He's produced several television shows, and specifically, he's an expert in theatrical experiences, thanks to his background as a playwright and performer. He's here today to talk about the fiercely intelligent playwright, Tom Stoppard. Scott Carter, welcome back to the History of Literature. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I will, in my neighborhood, I will boast that I'm an official friend of the show. That's right. And I'm I'm sure I will become (laughs) the envy of all my neighbors. Let me also say that getting ready for one of these episodes, I feel like it's, I'm getting ready for a final exam. Mm. That I feel like I, I must summon up all the best thoughts that I have on the subject and then figure out the, uh, the the shortest, most interesting ways to say them. Well, that makes you a good guest because, frankly, I've had <laughs> situations where I feel like I've done a little more preparation than the guest has, which has made it for a, a bit of a lopsided conversation. 
Yes, and I think I have listened to some of those episodes where I feel like you are supplying both the <laughs> questions and the answers. Okay, let's not name names. Okay, so <laughs> I know you uh, did some stand-up comedy and a one-man show, I believe, and I was fortunate enough to see one of your plays that's in production. We've talked about your interest in poetry before, and of course we talked about Oscar Wilde, but I'm curious to know when your specific interest in the theater began. How old were you and what was pulling you toward it? I was a senior in high school, I believe, and in Tucson, Arizona, the town where I grew up, the Broadway touring company of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead came through and I went to see it. Yeah. And that was my first introduction to Tom Stoppard. And I was struck by, it was the first example of, um, of colorblind casting. Mm -hmm. that either Rosencrantz and Guildenstern was played by a portly black gentleman. And um, and my other memories are the very first scene is a tour de force that's all about flipping a coin. Yeah. Uh, and it is hilarious and inventive and and then also kind of sets the tone for for what the entire rest of the play is going to be about. And so I remember that very clearly and how well it worked. Yeah. I maybe I'd seen the Olivier Hamlet, but I wasn't as familiar with Hamlet as I am now. And so Rosencrantz and Guildenstern uh, entertains me even more now than it did then. But the other thing that I remember is the very last time we see them, and this is not really a spoiler alert because they are characters in, in another play after all in Hamlet, is one of them, and I forget which one it is because they are kind of interchangeable. And one of them says, and this is the scene where they're on the ship and they are because Hamlet is being sent off to England from Denmark because he's kind of caused a scandal in Denmark. So Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are on the boat with him and they're going to be killed. And the last line that one of the two of them has is now you see us and now you and on the beat where the word don't occurs, there's a blackout. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh, this is a magician's trick that he has this impulse to entertain, which was not shared by many playwrights of his generation. Mm. Mm -hmm. That uh, there was always something a little bit withholding about Pinter. There was always something a little bit grim about Beckett. But Stoppard from his very early days was so set on entertaining you. He was determined to be delightful. Mm -hmm. And that was refreshing to me because a lot of my impulses were comedic. And so I uh, tremendously appreciated that. Then I think I started reading his subsequent plays, which would have been uh, Jumpers and then Travesties. And Travesties works on the page as well as I think on the stage, although although I've never seen it performed. I've only read it several mm. times and and it's just hilarious then it wasn't until 1976 that I was in London and saw the original production of a very minor play of his called Dirty Linen. Mm -hmm. And it's two little one-act plays that are butted up against each other. And there's an effect in it that he does later in his career several times, which is two different plays take place in the same room. So it's a meeting room in the House of Commons. And first characters from one committee come in. And then at some point, 35 minutes or so in, there's a knock on the door and there are other people who've scheduled the room and need the first people to leave. Mm. And, and that's its own little one act. 
And then the people from the first act come back and we have the conclusion to the first play and to the evening itself. And it's just hilarious. It's a sex farce. And there is an attractive young woman whose name is Miss Godebed. And there's a lot of, um, I remember at one point, uh, a lady's panties are on the stage as a prop and somebody puts them into their uh, attache case and somebody else says, you know, what what are those panties doing there? And the person replies, well, it's a briefcase after all. (laughs) And you just realize he's just trying to figure out how to be absolutely delightful. Mm -hmm. And the other thing about it is um, it was directed by a fellow named Ed Berman, who I think had directed other early plays of his. And this was Ed Berman was an American director who'd come over to England, stayed there and became a naturalized citizen. So this play was done by Stoppard for this company in honor of this person becoming a British citizen. And that was another thing that charmed me after a while about Stoppard was that he would do things almost on a dare. Mm. So for instance, Andre Previn, when he was a symphony conductor, said to Stoppard one time, if you ever do a play in which there is a symphony orchestra on stage, I could give you a production of it. Mm. So he then took this challenge and began to think about why would someone have a symphony orchestra? Mm. And he first began to work with the idea that it was a Texas billionaire who had the symphony orchestra on his great lawn, let's say. And then he began playing with it more. And eventually what it it developed into was a play called Every Good Boy Deserves Favor. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's set in a Russian prison in which one person is a political prisoner and the other person is a maniac, an actual uh, uh, mentally impaired gentleman who believes that there is a symphony orchestra on stage, but it's only in his mind. Mm. And so he, he has this juxtaposition between actual madness and then someone being accused of thinking incorrect thoughts by the state. Mm. Well, you've touched on a lot there that I wanted to ask you about. Let's go back to the first viewing you had of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and that moment where you realized this is someone who is devoted to entertaining. I mean, we could say that about the Three Stooges, but for Stoppard, it seems to be entertaining to a particular uh, sophisticated theater goer. It engages us intellectually. Are you admiring him because of uh, he... I mean, one of the things that stands out to me is that he doesn't seem to feel the need to over-explain things to the audience, that the audience he accepts will be in on the joke, or that he that they'll be as smart as he is, or that they will also enjoy the experience of the theater. They'll know who Hamlet was and what that is all about, and they'll kind of, he can kind of put his arm around our shoulders, so to speak, and tell us a good story and entertain us that way. It's interesting you say that. One of the things that I've heard him mention in recent interviews, and he's now, I think, 80 or 81, is that he can no longer depend upon the audience knowing as many references as he used to. So, for instance, I think in one of the plays that was recently revived, maybe Travesties, there's a a reference to Cordelia. And he said that when it was first done, everybody knew this was a daughter of King Lear's, and now they don't. Mm. On the other hand, I was just watching an interview with the cast of coast of utopia which was this mammothly ambitious 
trilogy of plays about the intellectual life of Russia in the 1800s before the revolution in 1916. And one of the things that uh, Stopper wasn't part of the interview was uh, four cast members. And they were talking about how gracious he was with all the cast that one would think he might be intimidating to work with. But he turned out to be so charming and thoughtful and gracious to them that they never felt intimidated by him and that they were then likening that to the experience that the audience has in seeing his work, how he takes such pains, probably now more so than when he was younger, to hold the viewer's hand through the journey he's going Mm. to take them on. And one of them made the comment that you'd think after talking to him, you would feel dumb. Instead, at the end of talking to him, working with him, or of seeing one of his plays, you feel smarter. Mm. Well, I guess that's, you know, that is kind of one of the criticisms of him has always been that he's he's kind of uh, impenetrable or that he will have ideas and he'll be on such a high plane that it's hard for the audience to engage. But I've I've actually found that he, and I think this was something he's tried to do more as he's developed as a playwright, is that there is more room for emotion and there is more room for some of his personal biography to come in. Has that been your experience as you look at his body of work? Yes, and I think probably because uh, we're talking about a person who began writing plays in 1960. Yeah. So we're talking about a massive body of work. And I would say now that that his more human uh, phase now probably uh, outspans his earlier, more aloof, more coldly intellectual phase. Mm-hmm. Right. And And I think that what happened was, I think a couple of things. One of them is I think that he maybe got to the end of those ideas. That could be one explanation. I think another is he got a lot of the criticism that you're talking about. I think he took it seriously. I think it came out a lot and uh, I think he took it seriously. Third, I think that he was so successful that I think it made him more courageous Mm. in the subjects he tackled. I remember an earlier review, I think it was with Kenneth Heinen uh, in a massive profile in the New Yorker, which was later published under a collection of profiles called show people that he did not see any reason to make his personal life into the quarry of his art. Mm. And he still hasn't. On the other hand, we see as he progresses that he's taking things that are happening in the world or coming to his attention in a way that he cannot ignore and deciding that he must challenge himself by doing a work to talk about it. So, for instance, the last play, Leopoldstadt, deals with Jews in a turn of the last century, Vienna. And he is a man who only recently found out that he is of Jewish heritage. Hmm. Not only did he find out that he was of Jewish heritage, but that many of his relatives had died in concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Now, Is he then going to do a play in which it's about him and his life and let's say learning this? No, he sets it in historical times and he's dealing with those issues, but he's in no way having it be autobiographical. The most autobiographical might be the character that originally was played on Broadway that a production I saw directed by Mike Nichols of uh, The Real Thing, which is a very successful playwright who's having an affair and Mm -hmm. eventually leaves his 
the, the wife to whom he's married and goes off with his mistress to whom he's then going to get married. And I think that's the closest. It's, it's a character who is very intelligent and funny, as Stoppard is, but also he he's not afraid to show in that play the protagonist has is shown warts and all. And so I think that's probably the closest that he has to a an autobiographical depiction. Maybe I'm forgetting something, but again, he's now been writing plays for over 60 years. So I, mm. I sometimes forget, oh yes, he also wrote that. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, well, have you ever met Tom Stoppard? I met him once. I was invited at the very last minute. There was a screening. This is before it was released. Before Shakespeare in Love was released, there was a screening for the Writers Guild. And so I got an email with one or two days notice saying, please come to this uh, screening of uh, a new movie, Shakespeare in Love. And there's going to be a question and answer with Mark Norman, who gets first credit as the screenwriter because it was originally his idea, and Tom Stoppard. And I somehow can't believe it's actually happening. I, uh, a friend of mine from England was actually in town. So he and I went to the screening and I took my copy, uh, first edition copy of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, thinking I was going to get him to sign it, which I, which he did. Um, but I remember him saying in the Q and a, well, first of all, they showed the movie. Then there was a little bit of a break. And during the break, I went outside with my friend and there's Stoppard smoking a cigarette. Hmm. And, and he seemed to be him. I don't think he was talking to Harvey Weinstein, but he was talking to somebody else who, and I was not going to interrupt him. Then there's the Q and a, and one of the questions that he's asked, or one of the things that he volunteers is how did we become a part of the project? And so he had a deal with, I think universal to work on uh, existing projects or to do rewrites. And he's done a lot of that, uh, for money in his life where there's an existing project often uncredited for vast sums of money. Mm -hmm. And so he, he asked them to send him a list of all of the projects they had options to. Mm. And one was the title. He looks at the title Shakespeare in love and says, can you get me that first draft? And he said, I began reading the first draft and I was hooked at that. The credit sequence was going to be Shakespeare practicing his signature mm. because there are six extant signatures of Shakespeare's. None of them are alike. Mm -hmm. And then when he expressed interest in it, someone, either his agent or one of the executives at Universal said to him, oh, you'll love this. It's right up your alley. And his response was, if you're an artist, up your alley is the last place you want to go. <laughs> and, um, and then at the end of the Q and a, I went up to get my, my book signed. And the one question I asked him, uh, the last time I'd been in London, I'd seen the original production of his play India Inc, which remains one of my favorites. And it starred his then wife, Felicity Kendall. And uh, I said, are you, are you ever going to make a movie of India Inc? And he looked up very briefly and said, we're working on it. And then after I got my book signed, I stepped aside and there was a, a man behind me who had an arm's length. Like if he had his arms down like a gorilla, the books that he wanted Stoppard to sign went from his hands all the way up to his chin. Hmm. And, and as I walked away, I heard Stoppard saying, are you opening a bookstore? Uh, but he's, but I'm sure he signed all the <laughs> books or, or most of them. So that was the one, the one time that I met him, I have had friends who've acted in his productions mm. 
in New York. And one of them told me it was like having Oscar Wilde at the rehearsals. Yeah. That he's there. First of all, every day he's coming immaculately appointed in whatever suit, whatever tie. It's like the time that I met Tom Wolfe. It was at Radio City. It was, it was, I forget the, oh, I know. It was um, GQ or somebody was having Best Dressed Men of the Year, some award, and I was uh, the editor of a, a trade publication covering the apparel industry. So there's Tom Wolfe, and he's playing the part of Tom Wolfe. He's got the Herbert Hoover collar. He's got the white, <laughs> the three-piece the three uh, piece white suit. He's got the white Homburg. Yeah. Well, that's how Stoppard showed up for rehearsal every day. Ah. And whenever you watch a YouTube video of him, every sentence is charming. Uh, I just watched one this morning getting ready. And he's now, as I said, he's 80 or 81. And uh, the interviewer, who was the director of his last two shows, was asking him about, are you ever going to stop smoking? And he said, well, it's one of the dumb things I do. Uh, It's the dumb side of me is his quote. And he talked about some fellow playwright who needed to smoke cigarettes in order to write. And he said, that's me also. I'd read interviews with him early on where he would say when he was trying to become a professional playwright full time, and they would work, work all day as a journalist, that at night he would allot himself a certain number of cigarettes. And that's how long he was going to work on plays that night. But in this interview, he also talked about getting older. And he said, as you get older, the, the present is a disappointment and the future is a lost domain. And as you listen to him, every sentence seems to previously crafted. And it reminds me of the notebooks that, uh, that exist of Oscar Wilde, where he would write aphorisms. As a young man, he would write aphorisms that then he would nonchalantly toss off at parties or play openings or gallery exhibits and then be quoted mm. he's preparing for it. And Stoppard early on would talk about, he would sometimes, uh, because he'd been a journalist and he'd interviewed others that he would practice interviewing himself to see if he had interesting answers. Mm. And he's eminently quotable. you anytime you yeah. read an interview with him, every thought he never, or at least in the print that I read, unlike me, he never starts a sentence over. He never fumbles for the right word. The right word is always within easy reach. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because although he has done all of these adaptations and worked so often on movie scripts and Shakespeare in Love, I think is kind of a miraculous movie. Another great one is the Indiana Jones, the third Indiana Jones, The Lost Crusade, the one with Sean Connery, which Steven Spielberg has said that Stoppard wrote every line of dialogue in that, although, like you said, he's uncredited. But He's so good with words, and you would think that he would be one of these people who puts the perfect words on the page and then demands that they be delivered as he wrote them, as kind of a, well, I've achieved perfection with these lines of dialogue. Instead, I've read that he does love the part of the experience of being there during rehearsals and coming up with new things and letting things breathe and exploring them as he hears them coming out of the actors' mouths, suggesting new lines and modifying the plays. And it's almost, in a way, that seems like it's more suitable if you have a an idea of language as being a living thing and being dynamic and being exciting and 
opening the door to a lot of possibilities that you would be open to that and you'd that's the way the playwright would be even if you are a, uh, so good with words that you could kind of demand perfection from them well it's a chef insisting on fresh produce mm, that yeah. uh it, and in fact what it reminds me of you know he's written one novel and the one novel was written at the same time or finished around the same time he finished Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And he thought that the novel, which no one remembers, yeah. called uh, Lord Malquist and Mr. Moon, which I, which I have read, he thought that was going to make his reputation. And Rosencrantz and Guildenstern was being done by some school troupe at the Edinburgh Festival, and he thought that was kind of a lark, but nothing would ever come of it. And the exact opposite happened. Nobody right. cared about the novel. And he describes it's another thing that he often refers to his life as a charmed life. And there are momentous, pivotal moments in his career that had they not happened, who knows what career he might have had. For instance, he talks about when Rosencrantz and Guildenstern was done in an, it was a long one act, I think it be, became later much longer for the theater, but it was a long one act and it was not a good production. The actors were students. They weren't very good, but he said, luckily. There was a critic who came to review the production who saw through the amateurs on stage to the core of his script and wrote a, a glowing review of it, which then came to the attention of the National Theater. So, so it's done at the National Theater. And then Olivier is the artistic director and he's saying, oh, well, dear boy, you might add this scene. Mm. Or what about this scene? And there are scenes by which when he was expanding it to become a full-length play that are being suggested to him by Laurence Olivier. Yeah, no and slouch. He's, and he's 20, <laughs> 28 or so, 27, 28 at the time. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with Scott Carter with more on Tom Stoppard. Okay, we are back. So, Scott, I'm interested. Do you feel we, you talked about you mentioned Tom Stoppard's own feeling that he had kind of a charmed life and he had such a an interesting origin story and background and, and childhood. Do you feel like you get to know him in his works when you're reading his works? No, I th I think that he's guarded. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the plays, except as I mentioned before, maybe the real thing. But otherwise, I think that his origin story, I mean, he's born in Czechoslovakia mm -hmm. and his and his father works for a um, I know uh, this, a shoe company, Bata. a shoe company, Bata. a shoe company, <laughs> but they have offices all over the world. Yeah. And as Hitler is rising to power, um, uh, they send some of their um, different uh, employees, uh, they're Jewish employees. They send them to other places. He gets sent to Singapore mm. and his father dies. The family then comes to, uh, India where mm -hmm. his mother remarries and, and that next, um, uh, the, the second father, he dies. He then, so then he's, he's going from Czechoslovakia to Singapore, to India, to England, to an English prep school. 
And I remember him, I remember listening years ago to an interview that he did, a full-length interview with John Lahr of the New Yorker for the New Yorker Festival. And he's and he's describing this origin story, which is about death and loss and upheaval. And there's a point where the audience is quiet and there's an awkward silence. And then you just hear Stoppard say, life, life. That mm. that's not where he wants to go with his art. Yeah. And so what I've concluded is that you have a little boy who is an outsider who's coming to different new civilizations, new languages, new customs. And over a period of time, he becomes a cricket fanatic. He becomes someone who loves English traditions. And mm. if you see any pictures of him where he's at home, very often it's an English landscape behind him. That uh, he is someone, and I've always been fascinated by these kind of people. So for instance, Robbie Robertson and the other Canadian members of the band mm -hmm. are more American than anybody else. Yeah. And more kind of rural, southern, like down-home American. <laughs> right. In the same way that Brian Wilson never surfed, but his younger brother Dennis <laughs> did. Four of the members of the band were Canadians, but they're working off of Levon Helm. Yeah. Uh, who was the only American from the Deep South. Another person like this is Vladimir Nabokov mm. coming and being just bedazzled by American society, American culture. Another person like that is Saul Steinberg, the artist for The New Yorker, mm. who his artwork is populated by Indians with headdresses and the Chrysler Building and Monument Valley. And one of the first things that Saul Steinberg did when he emigrated to America, when he first started selling his art and had enough money, he bought a cross-country train ticket mm. and just traveled the great breadth of this continent and just absorbing images that then would later be reflected in his art and Stoppard's like that. Mm. Stoppard is just completely inhaled English culture. Uh, he's got two plays at least with Oscar Wilde. He's got, you know, A.E. Houseman in Invention of Love. He's got, he's just so, well, Arcadia. Uh, so many of his works would probably never have been written by someone who was born in England mm. and took it all for granted. It had to be written by someone who discovered a foreign land. Mm -hmm. And a language. And a language. You asked me if I'd met him and I said, yes, I did once. And I had friends who were in the cast of his plays and one time on Real Time, which I produced for um, several years, Ethan Hawke was on. Hmm. We had had a little party after each show and I was talking to him. The conversation eventually got around to Stoppard because he had been in the original Coast of Utopia cast at Lincoln Center, the trilogy. Hmm. And so he told me the story as so I was walking him to his car in which Stoppard was there for all the rehearsals and the first performances. And one night after the show, he comes up to Ethan Hawke and he says, Ethan, um, uh, clarify for me that last line you have in the first act of the first play. Is it give music lessons, comma, I don't know, semicolon, what does it matter, question mark? And Ethan Hawke says, oh, I, oh, Tom, I don't remember. Let me, let me look it up. And the next day he sees Stoppard and he comes up to him and he says, oh, I looked, I looked it up. Uh, the, the, the correct pronunciation is give music lessons, comma, I don't know, comma, what does it matter? Question mark. And Stoppard looks at him and says, oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs>
that this was his way of getting yeah. Ethan Hawke to go back to his script to get the line right. 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 Mm. And, uh, okay, so you've read most of these plays. You've seen most of them performed. What's the experience of reading them been like for you? I would imagine Tom Stoppard is a better playwright to read. I mean, I've read a couple of his plays, but mostly I've I've just seen them performed. But even when I'm watching them performed, I'm kind of wishing that I was reading along because of the language. And I'm not sure I get a whole lot out of the performances that I wouldn't get just from reading them. So what's it like to read them on the page? Do you recommend that as a as an experience? I, I think they hold up extremely well on the page. However, yeah. That being said, there are some plays that I have only read, so I do not know what I'd be missing by a great production. Right, right. So, for instance, I've only read Jumpers. I've only read Travesties. And I think that there are some monumental productions, including fairly recent – in fact, that's one of the things Ethan Hawke said to me. He said, he said are you coming to New York in the next month or two because there, uh, there was a revival of Travesties? And I said, I, I don't know. because you've got to see. You've got to see this travesties revival. Well, I didn't get to. I mean, it's gone. So mm. you, you just don't know. And when I do see a show, very often I'll put a bookmark in my brain and say, when the script comes out, check out that speech later. There's a speech in Real Thing where the wife, played by Glenn Close in the original, is charmed by this romantic Irish rebel, played by Peter Gallagher. And so he's written a play. And, uh, and Glenn Close wants Jeremy Irons, the playwright to read Peter Gallagher's play. And of course it's a terrible play. Mm. And so there's this great speech that Stoppard wrote in defense of craftsmanship. And the way that the speech works is he pulls out a cricket bat and explains how the cricket bat is made of so many different pieces of wood that are glued together in a perfect design by which when the bat hits the ball, the ball goes off mm. it, it to, to maximum distance. And how the same thing is true when one puts craft and has talent, or perhaps genius, into words on a page for the stage, that if they are crafted correctly, the line when spoken crackles in the audience, mm. explodes in the minds of the people listening, in, and it can be greeted with applause or laughter or an amazed silence. But I remember the first time I heard that said, I remember I thought, oh, I want to read that later. I want to read that whole speech later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another thing that would be great about seeing the or that is great about seeing the performances is he attracts the very best actors and he is giving them some of the best lines of their lives that he yeah. he is calling forth the very best that you can see from the very top actors in the world. You might see you might see them in movies where they're, you know, playing a a Marvel character or something, but to be able to see them in a Tom Stoppard play, it really lets us appreciate how fine these actors are. Right, if I'm Tom Hiddleston or I'm Benedict Cumberbatch and my agent tells me that Tom Stoppard wants to me to read his new script, I'm just going to say, yes, I'll do it. Right. Tell me when to report. Yeah. Okay. So 
let's say I am giving you a nice producer's budget and saying money is no object. All I want from you is a stoppered play. Which one would you pick? Where would you want to stage it? And what would you like to bring to an audience? If money was no object, I I would want some of these plays that have not been filmed. I would like them to be Mm. filmed during his lifetime Mm. so -hmm. that he could go to participate in the casting, participate in the rehearsals, participate in the rewrites. I mean, the story on the bonus features of Shakespeare in Love are a testament to how willing he was to be rewriting and rewriting and inventing new scenes at the last minute. And the success of the movie is is a testament mm. uh, to that. So I would like to see a movie of The Real Thing. I'd like to see a movie of India, Inc. I would like to see a movie, not all of them. It's interesting. One of the movies that exists, one of the few movies that exists of his plays is the one that he directed, which is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And it's with Tim Roth and Gary Oldman and Richard Dreyfuss. And if you wanted to get started on Stoppard, where would you go? Mm-hmm. You know, what I think is, that you would start with Shakespeare in Love. I mean, mm. because I because I, I can't yeah. tell if the audience, if the listener of your podcast, let's say, who might be interested, if they have access to seeing great productions. Let's say they don't. So let's say you've got to go to film. Right. Let's say you've got to go to some other form. Okay, so I'd first start with Shakespeare in Love. Mm-hmm. Next, I would go to the movie of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and Dead, which he directed. And interestingly, I've heard him say in interviews, I'm the only person who could have directed this movie because I'm the only person who wouldn't take the enormous stage success of the play and treat it with reverence. Mm-hmm. I'm the writer. So I, I want it to work right now. I don't care about honoring the memory or right. reputation. Right. Oh, that's interesting. So we are nearing the end of our time here, but I don't want to cut you off if there's anything you wanted to explore that we haven't explored yet. I, I would say two other things after those, after Shakespeare in Love and Rosencrantz, Guildenstern are dead, the movie. I'd say there are two other things that I would point someone toward. One is, and this gets back to the notion of doing things on a dare. He did his last radio play, which came out just a couple of years ago when he's 79, 78, is called Dark Side. And mm. it's a narrative that he's invented to be joined by the music from Pink Floyd's Dark Side of mm. the Moon. Mm-hmm. So you're listening to this uh, very funny, <laughs> very intelligent uh, piece, but you're also hearing familiar Pink Floyd music. And then the last thing I would say, if you haven't, check out National Theater Live, NT Live. His last two plays, The Hard Problem and Leopoldstadt, are both there preserved in their original productions with the original cast, the original costumes, the original audiences who came to the play not knowing exactly what it was going to be and being delighted and impressed. Those are now, thanks to the National Theater and this process they now do where they film plays with nine cameras and they do an incredible job, it's preserved for all time. I mean, Mm. I would love to have been able to go back to the original production of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead with John Wood and Brian Murray, Brian Murray, who I got to know later on and played Tolstoy in a, in a reading of, of discord or the original production of travesties. I'd like to see how they hold up, mm. but I can't, mm. yeah. uh, any more than I could see, uh, animal crackers by the Marx brothers on stage. I wish that were possible. Well, now 
with the National Theatre Live, uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company now records most of their productions, it will be possible for people 20, 30, 40 years from now to see these original productions and judge if they still have a relevance. Right. And the performances and all of the decisions that go into it and just kind of the magic of the theater. I mean, it it can't be quite the same as being there in the audience, but you can really, from a, a scholarly perspective or just a fan perspective, it really does give you that ability to kind of go back in history and see what it was like when it was going on the stage before an audience for the first time. Right. I mean, you know, uh, Mae West wrote and starred in Broadway plays before she came out to Hollywood. Well, what are they like? What's the laugh like in the theater? What's the Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl? Yeah. Uh, Barlam Brando on stage in Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah. Right. Think about that. Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. I just got goosebumps. Okay. Scott Carter, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. You are quite welcome. And it is always my pleasure, and I hope that I have passed this exam. <laughs> A plus. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. There we, <laughs> there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Scott Carter for joining us. This has been a fun one. Oh, man, there's still so much I want to read. And see so many plays, so many films. You'd think I'd run out. But nope. Literature is inexhaustible. Luckily, I am not exhausted. It's one or the other, isn't it? Either literature gets exhausted or I do. And yet, here we are. We are both still chugging along. And I'm glad you're here, too. Probably not chugging. I'm sure you're much more refined and sophisticated than that zipping along zooming along with quiet efficiency and great rapidity like a high-speed train that levitates on magnets wave out the window when you pass the little engine that's huffing and puffing to make it up the hill burning a lump of coal to get those creaky wheels turning a lump of coal in my little engine box. Just a little lump of coal. A lot like the little lump in my throat. Every time I say goodbye, here we go. Swallow hard. Eyes bright. No tears. Voice steady. Brave face. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And <sighs> Let me try again. I know this is just temporary. I'll be seeing you again soon, but it's like, well, when am I going to see you again? Monday? How do I know you'll be there? Okay, okay, I know. It's time. I can do this. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for... Can you promise me you'll be back? Please? I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.